Dropping once. Now throwing long down the left side. Slaughter has it. He's going in for a touchdown. The Browns have won the game. Throwing deep down the left side. Slaughter is open. He got the ball. My DBN brothers and sisters, I'm a Browns fan who's basking in the glow of the off-season title. My name is Thelonious Seven, and you, you're listening to Straight No Chaser on the DBN Network. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I can't believe what we've just witnessed in the last week. Going into the free agency period, you know, you're dealing with the stark contrast of management styles and the valuation of the team builders in charge of this organization. Sashi Brown, he's here no more, but what does that mean? Sashi Brown, the voice of the benevolent capologist, the consensus builder, the aggressive negotiator, the analytics guy, he's gone. Last year, the benevolent capologist Sashi Brown was incredibly active in free agency. He got Treader, he got Zeitler, Kenny Britt, brought in some guys and Compared to what we're used to, that was a relatively decent haul for the Cleveland Browns during free agency period going into the 2017 season. But have you ever heard of the term velocitization? You know, it's it's uh, pretty much a DMV thing. Uh, it's this concept, uh, uh, for example, when you're traveling very quickly on the freeway, for example, maybe 75 going on the turnpike, and you exit and you head off to one of those small towns, Macedonia, I don't know. Bay Village, Lakewood, all of a sudden the speed limit reduces drastically and it seems like you're driving slow enough, but you check the speedometer it's like, ah, this really isn't slow enough and I have to be careful because you know how those policemen be hiding in the cut, watching out for these guys. (laughs) Well, this offseason, I'm actually not a victim of velocitization. I'm actually a victim of reverse velocitization. Instead of Sashi Brown at the control, scrimping and saving, I mean, Sashi Brown is hitting cruise control about a quarter mile outside of the Hudson City limits. You know, Sashi Brown spent his time basically trying to placate his coaches. I mean, he was trying to get Hugh Jackson, the guys who moved heaven and earth. I mean, he was really in an impossible position trying to make moves with Jackson as his coach. Then you contrast that with what's going on with John Dorsey. You know, maybe John Dorsey has a get-out-of-jail-free card. But he's not worried about the police hiding in the cut of Bavalage. I mean, he doesn't care. He, D-G-A-F, he's got the Rari and he's got no conscience. And maybe that's what football guys are all about. He's just a guy who does what's got to be done in this situation. Uh, regardless of the context. I mean... There's not time for John Dorsey to sweat the details when he's moving as fast as he's moving. But in a way, this kind of makes sense to me. You know, Sashi Brown was trying to build a sustainable winner over time. And John Dorsey, he's just trying to win right now. He's trying to turn $100 million of cap space and an 0-16 roster into a playoff team in but a single offseason with the exact same coach that went 0-16. Really, really, 
really, what, what, what am I watching right now? What is happening? I certainly have reverse velocitization. And now, all of a sudden, everything is changing all at once. Shaking the soul of this organization and this team to the foundation and building it up again all at once. I mean, something is wrong. Something is wrong here. I don't know. I don't know. But it feels wrong. Honestly, I don't even know what it is logically when I step back and think about it. I think that Dorsey's getting more right than he's getting wrong. And really, he pretty much had to do this, right? I mean, the squad was 0-16. They were 0-16. That was the worst season in the history of seasons. It was the worst football that I personally has ever witnessed. So depressing to know that you are addicted to a team that has no chance of doing anything. A team that has no chance of providing you anything more than a halftime lead, which will magically evaporate before the final gun every single time. John Dorsey had to do it. And really... The landscape of this draft is changing. It's changing daily. The Jets and the Bills and the Giants. And look, let's be real. With the Jets picking at three now, I think it's looking more and more likely like the top three picks are going to go quarterbacks. One, two, three. The Giants are in an incredibly powerful position at two. And look how it's shaking out. It's kind of surprising that the Colts were able to deal out of three before the Giants at two. And apparently there are rumors that the Giants actually turned down the same offer that the Jets offered uh, for pick number three. Look, there is obviously a market for that pick. And now the Jets have said it. Three second rounders to move back three slots. And really, I said before the Jets game last year, the Jets suck at tanking. And to have to cash in future assets to move up a few positions. 2017, it's over. Thank God it is over. And I must say that they would be happy to vacate a couple of those wins to keep those future assets in the house. That value is real. This is a case where it looks like the value was slightly below the pain threshold for the Jets. And it looks like a win-win. And now, with Pro Day shaking out, you have to feel like the Jets are looking at Rosen. But they probably are going to be happy with any of the top three prospects at the quarterback position. And that makes the top of the draft... So much more rich with intrigue. Can you believe in this draft class that the Browns have two of the top five picks this year? They're going to have their cake and eat it too. They're going to sit at the top of the draft, pick who they want at quarterback. And, you know, I know there was some Barkley talk, and I've even, even thought about this a bit at the beginning, especially the way he showed out at the combine. Because he looks like an elite prospect and in a position of need for the Browns. But as I'm looking at it now, the Browns almost have to deal out of four. The Bills and the Broncos are looking to move up. And still, there's the Cardinals. And what about the Saints and Chargers and the Jags? The quarterback need in a quarterback-driven league is real. And two and four, picks number two and four in this class now are huge. Number four will certainly remain huge. If and only if Denver remains at the five position. I mean, we all like Keenum, but having leverage over Elway gives that pick value. But as soon as Denver moves, and I'm not sure that they will, but if they move to two or something like this happens, we'll get our pick of non-quarterbacks at four. If Denver stays pick, we should get value depending on the quarterback perception. 
But then you have to ask yourself if moving out of four is even advisable. And I would say, I think I maintain that it is, depending on the offer. People say they want quality over quantity. And I'm saying sometimes quantity is a better bet. In some pools, you just want to take more shots. This is a situation that there's enough good players in the top 60 that getting six of them would be unreal. And to and quantity at the top pool of this graph would allow the Browns to add quality players at more positions. And if you um, and if the cost to you is adding a true different maker, then I could see it, but I'm not really sure who this difference maker actually is. If it's Barkley, okay, I could buy it. For Barkley, he's a player who sells out of the backfield, but for me, I feel like he's not the perfect fit for the Browns. He hasn't really run between the tackles. I know we got Carlos Hyde to do that, so it does make sense to add him as a complimentary player, but at four, does that really seem like the correct value here? I also like Sony Michelle. I mean, we definitely were watching Tony Michelle do his touchdown dance where he does the bow and waves his hands in the air. I love this guy very much. And in a tandem with Hyde, could be a really devastating uh, uh, pair out of the backfield in Cleveland. I also like both Chubbs, Nick Chubb and Bradley Chubb. If we stayed put, I could get excited about Bradley Chubb. For me, though, Minka Fitzpatrick seems like the weak link because specifically he doesn't have a position. I mean, when we're talking about selecting him as a free safety, it seemed kind of interesting, but the more people talk about him uh, and basically what his tape shows us in college, it seems like he's going to be a cornerback. And taking a cornerback whose skill set screams free safety seems like can be an issue. It seems like it could be an issue. And so for me, Minka Fitzpatrick isn't the guy that I'm looking to add to the roster. With guys like Nelson or McGlinchey, they seem like interesting positions on the on the offensive line to add as well. I could go with them as well, especially McGlinchey. But if I say put at number four, the player that I think I feel most comfortable adding to this roster would probably be a guy like Denzel Ward from Ohio State. And there's some interesting players that are available for, but for me, Ward makes the most sense in terms of value for what the Browns are going to be needing coming up into this next year. In any case, looking at these guys, and perhaps (laughs) the guy that I'd want to target is a guy who's in probably the second pool of the draft. And to me, I kind of feel like adding a guy a little bit late. I mean, it's it's just my personal preference. I feel like adding a guy a little bit later in the draft could actually really strengthen our team and potentially weaken our rival. The guy I'm targeting first and foremost for the Browns is at the wide receiver position. Uh, He's a wide receiver out of the University of Maryland named DJ Moore, who I would steal right off the doorstep of the the Baltimore Ravens, who I am. I am almost dead certain that the Ravens would select him given the opportunity. Now, I'm not sure if we have fatigue from the Coco Coleman move to go back and make that play. But I like TJ Moore. I also like Davenport. Moving back from uh, moving back to 12 and 22 and ending up with these two players and additional future assets could be a win for the squad. And you never know when you move back what you're going to end up with. And perhaps the Browns might want, not want to wait until they're on the clock to make such a move. I'm oh, sorry. Perhaps they might want to wait until they're on the clock to make that kind of a move. Uh, but the possibilities are certainly there. If I didn't like that pool of talent, I might be more weary. But you just don't see the talent at the top in terms of talented players who have solitude comps in terms of, val- uh, uh, in terms of uh, value for our team. 
You could stay there and take Ward or more, but why not move back and get some more first-rounders? I mean, Davenport has top four talent, more produce at a substandard uh, Maryland University in terms of quarterback play, but the good thing about this free agency period is that the Browns have set themselves up, and now they're ready, and now they're free to get the best value with every single pick. They added seven solid players in free agency. Chris Hubbard, Travis Carey, Carlos Hyde, Darren Fells, tight end out of Detroit, Terrence Mitchell, a young cornerback out of Kansas City who's going to play a backup role for the Browns, Chris Smith from Cincinnati, and Donald Stevenson, who I kind of don't want him to see the field at all, but they've added some players in free agency. Additionally, they traded for Randall, Taylor, and Landry. But what would any Browns offseason be without the team running the man who started the most games for them the previous year quarterback? And this is exactly what's happened this year. Of course, they ran Deshaun Kaiser. If there's anything about this offseason that gives me pause, it's how unceremoniously the Browns rushed out an unprepared quarterback into the season and made us watch and then ran a 22-year-old kid out of town. Man, they got some value for Deshaun Kaiser, which is more than what I could say for what they got for Shelton. You know, but to me, it's these moves that scare me about the front office. For one thing, I think the front office is handcuffed by this coaching staff. And now they have to run players who any organization should under average circumstance be keeping. This is what happens when you change GMs every two years. I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum. I think this is the reason why I'd rather have Sashi than to keep Hugh Jackson. Because you feel like Sashi would get better in terms of his role selecting players in year three. And that he'd be able to add a coach that could develop a young team of players at least better than what you've been seeing with Jackson. But at the same time, I think people around the league largely view Sashi Brown as a failed experiment due to the lack of his understanding of the culture of an NFL locker room. The guys who were in costume, on the field, got to feel like the leaders are putting him in the best position to win. And even though Hugh Jackson kept the motivation up, and that's something that looking back on this season, you really cannot overlook. That's a really monumental task to keep a team focused through an 0-16 record. I really never had a chance with that group in some way. And I would say, going into this offseason, Dorsey had nine positions that needed to be addressed. I mean, really, a team like this, there are so many. It's probably easier to talk about the ones that you want to keep critical roles and the one you want to replace. For me on the defense, you looked and you saw Garrett, Ogba, Ogunjobi, Collins, Kirko, Schobert. I mean, basically you need a new secondary and now also with the moving of Danny Shelton, you're going to need a new defensive tackle. And on offense, you got hopefully Gordon, Chief, Duke, Zeitler, Treader, Batonio, Coleman. And you need clearly four players there. 
quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and of course, a left tackle. And they were able to patch some of these things up in free agency to the point that going into the draft, the overriding question is still what to do at pick number one. And what makes it so bizarre this year is the total lack of consensus that there is around the league about the first pick. You know, as I initially started out, I mean, really before the college season was over, I was stating that I liked Josh Allen. I don't think I've taken any more slack about this than I have about anything about supporting this guy. And even now, I still like Allen. I actually like him a whole lot. For me, I'm Hugh Jackson. I see this guy and I think of everything that I've ever wanted. And I see it in him. And I want him at number one. Really though, Josh Allen at one makes sense in Cleveland for a lot of reasons. He's like drafting Kaiser, only this time you don't rush him into the fire. You get him a mentor that he can learn from. And you take a look at him next year. Essentially for the Browns, with already having Tyrod Taylor in the fold, pick one is a luxury for them. They can select the player that they feel has the highest upside possible. And for me, this is the very reason why you take Allen at number one. And it's also the reason you take Sam Darnold. And as we head into the last month before the draft, I would like to go on record to say that I like Darnold more than Allen because I view his floor as being higher than Allen's. And with a pick at one, that variance is enough to put me with Darnold, but only slightly with Darnold. You know, the one thing that made me pause with Darnold so far in this process is his decision not to throw at the combat in. Man, I totally understand it. I do. But to me, it gives me pause. And, you know, I don't know. I want that competitor. And Darnold has shown me on the field. And in fact, I like his demeanor and perhaps the courage, his conviction not to throw. And I think that says something about him as well. But it, but. For me, the problem is that he's first. He's first in the line, and there are three or four other guys looking to make a case. And he pretty much has to slam the door on all that noise and distinguish himself from the group. And by not throwing at this point in the story, he leaves the door open. And who steps in? None other than Baker Mayfield. And I've been highly critical of the antics of Mayfield. And I believe picking the guy at one is about as big of a risk as I can imagine. It bugs me to no end how people can just blow off multiple questionable situations he's faced in the last year. That is risk to me. And I'm averse to risk at one. I don't want a floor of Johnny Manziel. And before you slam me for comparing Baker Mayfield to Johnny Manziel, the floor is Johnny Manziel has literally nothing to do with football. It's not about football when it comes to a floor of Johnny Manziel. It's the real-life prospect that this guy might have issues that have nothing to do with the game, affect the game, and affect this team. I don't see you would, why you would do this at one with so many other great prospects on board. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. But, But I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Over the past month, 
Maybe it's because I've been listening to Easy Weave so religiously. Maybe it's because I've been on the chow, lurking about, and reading conversations about it. Maybe I went back and watched some film a little bit more. Maybe I looked for some more analysis on it from other people. But I guess in the last month or so, I would say that I've softened my stance on Mayfield. He very well may be the jerk that I was seeing getting tackled by the police, refusing to talk with the Bears in Mobile. He may be that guy. But the more I watch, the more I concede, I concede almost reluctantly that he could also be something special. Man, the numbers say it. But truly, I don't really care about the numbers. I'm worried about how he's going to be able to function in a system that doesn't necessarily cater to what he does well. I worry that if he struggles early, that he'll have problems that you're not really going to see now and you haven't seen from him before. You know, I don't think that he will lose well because I don't think that he wins with much class. And I think that for him to be successful, he has got to be in a good spot. For me, I'm at the point where I could reluctantly and grudgingly get behind him if in fact he was the pick. And I guess I have to thank Mr. Weed for that, as well as the countless other hordes of posters on Dogs by Nature and the Daily Dog Chow. They've softened my perspective. They've softened my stance. And I truly have changed the way that I think about this guy. I've also kind of softened my perspective on Rosen too. He's a guy who I felt showed the best on tape in terms of traits that would transition to the NFL. And as we got to know him a bit more, I think it's clear that people are starting to understand who he is as a guy. And while I think the narrative of him being a guy that's a little bit different is here to stay, I don't think that he's a bad pick at all. Injury concerns notwithstanding. Sasnash has also been advocating for the selection of Lamar Jackson. And uh, with Tyrod Taylor being uh, in the building, it even makes a little bit more sense than, than before. And I will say that within the last month or so, I've moved from seeing him uh, as more of a slash. And, and I wanted to say, when I say that I think of him as a slash, it's not that I don't think he could be a quarterback. It's that looking at him play football, his best traits are with the ball in his hands running. Like, I don't even want him to throw it to somebody else. It's just, you take the ball, man. Just do it. For me, I kind of think of him as a running back, the kind of guy who catches the ball out of the backfield and just, like, gets it open in space and takes it to the house. He can also be a quarterback, too. For me, I watch him from the pocket he can throw. But for me, I'm also a little bit worried about him keeping drives alive on third downs and long consistently from the pocket with his accuracy issues. Now, if he... You know, just drops back and just runs the football. I'm sure he can damage the defense enough like this. But if he can't keep people honest with the honest, sincere threat of success from the pocket, I feel like that could put him in a bad position long term for his career. I mean, for me, I think this could be Michael Vick. And in some ways, I think it could be better than Michael Vick. Michael Vick was a devastating runner in space. And I think Jackson sometimes looks more dangerous. And he's so good, somebody's going to give him a chance. If this was last year, I would pick Jackson before Watson. And I think if I had the opportunity, if he had the opportunity that Kaiser had last year, I'm sure that Jackson would have done 
made more of it than what Deshaun did. Deshaun Kaiser did. <laughs> but Lamar Jackson, the talent he brings to the table, makes it five first-round talents in this year's draft. I got them now as first Darnold, second Allen, third Mayfield, fourth Rosen, fifth Jackson. And these are my preferences. Darnold is hanging on to the top by the slimmest of margins. I mean, he's there. But clearly, clearly, there's not a lot of separation between him and the top. But Hunter's a perfect candidate. I got Darnold at an 89.75. Josh Allen at an 89.5. Baker Mayfield at third at an 89.4. Rosen at an 89.25. Jackson at an 87. For me, that's like only two uh, and three quarter points separating the top five candidates. And that's the thing, like all... All five are definitely worth first-round selections to me. They definitely merit that, especially with the position having the value that it does. They're close, and I can hear arguments for all of them. I think I'm taking Darnold because, you know, really you're not going to play him this year. You can let him grow. He can learn from someone who would immunize him against his worst traits. I think it's the same reason that I like Darnold here, too, right now. Both of those guys are rare talent with rare upsides. In a spot where they should have to sit for a year, it kind of suggests that the Browns aren't going to go pick a 23-year-old and park him on the bench. You have to ask yourself, how do you think Baker Mayfield, the alpha dog, as everybody keeps uh, describing him as, is going to like sitting behind Tyrod Taylor? Especially... When you watch Tyrod Taylor play football and he plays at the same infuriating level that had ambivalent Bills fans gnashing their teeth. You know, I've softened, but I've seen this show before. I would bring in Baker Mayfield, but I would not preclude before his selection that he wasn't going to start. That's just stupid. That's really stupid. Why would you tell him that? Essentially by saying that, you're saying that you're basically not even thinking about picking it. It's an overreach. I mean, it may be right for Hugh Jackson to do this. And Hugh Jackson can do it. But why not just wait till after the draft? In the end, if there's been a reliable signal out of Berea, it's that Coach Jackson is not at all thinking about taking Baker Mayfield. And if for some reason, Baker Mayfield is a selection, you will know just how far out of step he is with the front office. I suspect the trade for Taylor in the first place is a red herring. I mean, sitting here is Shoe Jackson's guy, the one that he wanted to trade a second and a third for last year at the low, low price of just $5 million per year. And what's worse, Hugh Jackson had to vouch for A.J. McCarron to the Buffalo Bills as they selected him as Taylor's replacement. I find it comical that Hugh Jackson pines for one guy. Ken Zampezi pines for this guy, but he ends up with another guy, even at a worse cost. That sounds like the front office already isn't listening to Jackson on QB matters. So the Browns set themselves up to get better. 
And as they go into this draft process, they have the the advantage of being able to use their talented selections as depth rather than immediate key contributors going into the fall. Really, this is where Dorsey's vision contrasts from that of the previous regime. I don't think that he's looking to do anything but win as many games as he can right now. And we know he stated at the beginning of the year what he was aiming for. And I guess I don't think you can really go from 0-16 to 9 or 10 wins all at once in a way that will actually have you thinking about the playoffs. I still don't think that's right. But I'm starting to rethink everything about this team already. And really, isn't that what this offseason is all about? To think about what's possible? One thing that spoiled many of my 2018 dreams, though, has been the press conferences of Hugh Jackson. I just don't want to see that dude's face anymore. I'm trying to be objective about it. I want to be excited. I want to feel like I can believe what the dude is saying, but all of a sudden, just watching him even for like a few moments come up on the screen, he just takes me right back to the horrors of 2017. It's like this dream you just can't get away from. And with that, I guess we'll put this episode in the books. Guys, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to make the DBN part of your day. Please leave a comment in the comment section as it helps to facilitate discussion with you, the best fans in all the professional sports. Welp, that was your dose of the straight truth. You've been listening to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Thelonious7, on the DBN Network. Please take care. Gasson is kneeling at the 17, 37-yard attempt. The kick is up, and it's good! Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.